Good evening, church. You please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 7 through 11 this evening. 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. John concluded the previous passage to this one, verse 6, by saying this, that whoever says he abides in him, that is Jesus, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And he's going to proceed in this passage to show us what that looks like in practice. And one of the things that I've noticed throughout my Christian life is that so much of following Christ is, uh, you might say, paradoxical or counterintuitive to us. It's in giving that we receive. Uh, The meek shall inherit the earth. Uh, and, And this passage teaches us that the way to receive true love, the way to be loved, is to give love away. How can that be? How could it be the case that the way to receive love is to give it away? Let's go to the text and see. 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away. And the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and be among us this evening and would would you open the eyes of our hearts to give us understanding of this passage? Would you show us Jesus and his love for us very clearly? And would you help us to respond the way that we should? We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. No matter how uh, how many years you've been doing something, or how advanced you might feel at something, it's always a good idea to return to the fundamentals. Uh, In July of 1961, the Green Bay Packers of the National Football League uh, gathered together for training camp to begin a new season. And their coach, Vince Lombardi, stood up before the men to address them to begin the season And he held up a football, and he said, gentlemen, this is a football. And then he then proceeded to reteach them all the basics of the game of football, how to block, how to tackle, pass, catch, and they relearned the entire playbook that they had. One of the players joked, coach, could you slow down? You're going a little too fast for us. He was returning to the fundamentals, to the basics. John is doing the same thing in this passage. He says, I'm not writing to you a new commandment. This is an old commandment that you've had from the very beginning. And because it's an old commandment that you've had, it serves as a kind of test as to whether or not you are living in the light, abiding in the light, 
as to whether or not you actually know Jesus. Because those who know Jesus have been delivered from the darkness of hating one another and rescued into the light of loving each other. Those who know Jesus have been delivered from the darkness, walking in darkness of hating each other, and delivered into the light of loving one another. It's a simple command, really, to love one another, but it's one that's exceedingly difficult for us to keep. So much of the Christian life is like that. Very simple, but also very difficult. And so, just two points this evening that John gives us in this passage. One is the power for love. He shows us what power can motivate us and compel us to love this way. And then secondly, he shows us the practice of love, the power for love and the practice of love. You'll notice when he discusses the power for love in verses 7 and 8, that he doesn't actually tell us what the command is. He talks about it being an old command and a new command, but he hasn't told us what it is yet. But we know from the context from verses 9 through 11 that he's talking about that command to love others as you love yourself. To love others as you love yourself. And then he continues with this kind of contradictory statement. It's not a new commandment. It's an old commandment. And at the same time, it's a new commandment. Everybody following so far? So which is it, John? Is it an old commandment or is it a new one? And what he wants to show us here is that it's actually both. It's an old commandment in the sense that we've had it from the very beginning of when the law was given to us. All the way back in Leviticus chapter 19, we're given this commandment for the first time to love others as we love ourselves. And then it's repeated in the book of Deuteronomy and on and on throughout Scripture. It's an old commandment. It's also an old commandment in the sense that this command to love each other as we love ourselves is really foundational to the Christian life. In fact, even if you aren't a Christian, this is one of the things that we learn from a very early age and can grasp at the very beginning of our lives. Just the other day, I was uh, driving to school with my five-year-old And he's been learning about uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his work to lead the civil rights movement. And uh, I was explaining to him that uh, Dr. King was trying to make it so that everybody could have the same rights and access and be loved the same way, regardless of what they looked like. And he said, wait, Dad, you mean to tell me that there were people who couldn't do things, weren't allowed to do things because of the color of their skin or because of what they looked like? I said, yeah, that's right. And he said, well, that's not loving others as you love yourself. Even a five-year-old can grasp this very basic commandment and when it's not being kept. It's something we learn early on in life. So it's an old commandment. At the same time, it's a new commandment. Uh, Jesus called it that in John chapter 13. He's talking to his disciples toward the end of his life, and he says, a new commandment I give to you that you love others just as I have loved you. So it's a new commandment. But why do we we need a new commandment? Why would he need to call it a new commandment if we've had it for so long, had it from the beginning? And part of the reason for that is that we've never been actually able to keep it. We've never been able to keep the commandment to love others as we love others 
ourselves. We're all naturally inward focused, but that love rarely uh, makes its way outside of ourselves and is directed at others. You know, in the Jewish tradition, rabbis would take the law of God and the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and they would develop hundreds and hundreds of other rules that were designed to kind of put up fences around the law to help keep people from breaking the law and to help aid them to keep the law. And, and, you know, this endeavor is to be admired on the one hand because it takes very seriously the idea of following and keeping God's law. But at the end of the day, even following all those rules that are designed to help you to keep the first law, the, the law in the first place, were never effective in helping us to keep the law because the problem resides within. The problem resides in our hearts. You know, the only reason that the law was given is because we have sinful hearts and we don't know how to live in a way that is in keeping with God's design for us. Remember in Deuteronomy when uh, Moses writes that I've given you this law so that it might go well with you and with your children. The law was designed to help us to live the life we were made for. And what that shows us is that we've never been able to love ourselves perfectly. And so if we can't even love ourselves perfectly, then how can we love other people perfectly if our command to love them is based on our love for ourselves? You see, any attempt at loving another person will inevitably be tainted by our own lack of self-love. And what that shows us is that we need a love from outside ourselves. We need a love from outside. I want you to notice one key difference in the command, the old command that was given in Leviticus 19 and the new command given in John 13. In Leviticus 19, Moses writes, love others as you love yourself. In John 13, Jesus says to his disciples, love one another just as I have loved you just as I have loved you. You see, this is a love of a different kind altogether. That's why he can rightly call it a new commandment because it's based not on a broken and tainted self-love, but on a perfected love that comes from Jesus. The, The commandment from the law was just a picture of the reality that we were to receive in the perfect love of Jesus. And the reality of Jesus' love far outstrips anything that we might be able to manufacture in ourselves in response to the law. It's kind of like this. A a few weeks ago, my wife and I took a trip out to Rocky Mountain National Park. And it was a trip that we had been uh, looking forward to and anticipating for many months. And uh, I'm always the, the trip planner in our house. So I had done hours and hours of research and looked at hundreds and hundreds of pictures of uh, the various places we wanted to visit and the hikes we wanted to go on. And every time I would, uh, I would go through these different trails and hikes and look at the pictures, I would just be, I would get excited again, and I would just be in awe of the beauty of, uh, of God's creation in this park that we were going to, and it would fill me with excitement and anticipation. But I got to tell you, when we finally got there, 
And we hiked out to one of the hikes we'd been looking forward to. And we stood in front of Dream Lake, which was perfectly still. And the mountains in the background were reflected off the surface of the lake. And there were elk grazing just a few yards away. And the chipmunks were running across the tops of your shoes and perching on your backpack. And you see the the waterfall coming down the mountain, feeding the lake from the melted snow. The reality of that could rightly called, be called new because it far outstripped any of the pictures that I looked at in researching before we went. The reality was so much greater than anything I could have anticipated because we were there and we were experiencing it for real. This is what John is saying about the love of Jesus No matter how much we might love ourselves and seek to make ourselves happy, it will always be tainted and fall short of the love of Jesus. So Jesus' love and his commandment to love is a new commandment altogether. I think in response to this passage and what we're called to, to love each other, that this point is worth camping on for just a few moments. I want you to Look with me and think with me for a moment about some of the ways that we might categorize Jesus' love for us and how much greater it is than our own self-love. Think with me about some of the ways that we might measure the magnitude of love. Uh, One way might be uh, what one must give up in order to extend love. Philippians chapter 2 says that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself and became a servant. You might measure it by what one subjects themselves to in order to extend that love. Jesus came and subjected himself to the law and fulfilled it perfectly and subjected himself to a world that he created good, but that we broke. To whom the love is extended... Jesus gives us life and breath and everything else. And when he created the garden, he said, you can have everything except for this one tree. And what did we say? That's not good enough. I want the one thing that I was told I couldn't have. You can measure it by how deserving the one loved is. Titus 3 tells us that he loved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but because of his mercy. You could measure it by the recipient's awareness of their need for love and redemption. Ephesians tells us that before Jesus broke into our lives, we were walking in darkness, being hated and hating one another. You could measure it by the receptiveness of the recipient. How much do they receive the love? Isaiah 53 says that he was despised and rejected by men. Measure it by the response of the recipient. Jesus gives salvation as a free gift, and yet people still reject him every day. Then you could measure it by what one must give in order to give this love. Greater love has no one than this, John writes, that he lay down his life for his friends. What the recipient receives through that giving. We receive adoption into God's family as as children of God and eternal life. What the recipient escapes, we escape eternal punishment and separation from a God of love. 
the permanence of the love. First Peter tells us that this inheritance is kept in heaven for us, imperishable, unfading, undefiled. And the continued efficacy of the love. Even after we come to Christ, even after we see our need and quit rejecting him and receive his love, we continue to turn away. And yet he says, as often as you repent, I stand ready to forgive. Brothers and sisters, there is no other love like this. We could go on and on and on about the different categories and measurements of God's love and we would never get to the end of it. And Jesus is saying, this is the way that I have loved you. No matter how much you think you know what is best for you and how much you love yourself, my love for you is even greater. This is the greatness of Jesus' love for us. And if we've been loved this way, then there is no barrier to us turning and extending that love to another. I say that, and I realize that that example can be refreshing to us and, 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 and warm our hearts to Christ. And at the same time, in our, our legalism, it can also crush us because we can try to emulate that love and we fall short before we even get started. And so Jesus gives us not only a love from outside of ourselves, but a love that works inside of us to enable us to love. John writes... In verse 8, he says, The darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. What he's referring to here is the overlapping of the ages. When Jesus came, and he lived, and he died, and he rose again, and he ascended, he brought the kingdom of God to bear and to begin to make its home here on this earth. Not in full. That will come in full when he returns And the kingdom of darkness is beginning to be defeated. And so he's saying the ability to love as I have loved has been been brought to bear on your present reality. Not only that, John says, this commandment is true in him and in you. This Christ whom you are united to in love is sharing this love and this ability to love with you. If you are in him. So what might that look like practically? If we've received this incredible love. And he's empowering us to love. Very simply. When we find ourselves in a position. Where there is a person whom we are struggling to love. Who is making it very difficult for us to love them. And you've all got a picture in your mind right away of that person. What we can do is we can put ourselves in their position and we can put Christ in our position. And we ask the question, how would Christ relate to this person if he was in my place? That's how we can practically love one another just as Jesus has loved us. So John shows us the power for loving one another. He also shows us the practice of love. The practice of love. What will this look like in our lives? It's interesting to me that he states this part of the passage in a negative. We learn in, uh, in preaching class that you state commands in a positive so people don't have to flip it in their mind. But he states it in a negative. And I think what that shows us implicitly is that we are very prone to try to sidestep this commandment. 
we're very prone to try to dress up all the other aspects of our lives and neglect this very fundamental and basic command to love one another. And so for the, the first negative thing he says is that there is no neutrality in loving others. There's no neutrality. I get that because of the way that John loves to write, both in his gospel and in his letters, in this uh, using contrasts. So you see the contrast here is love and light versus hate and darkness. He's saying there's no middle ground here. In fact, he says in verse 9 that someone can actually profess that they know Christ. Someone can have very good doctrine and say all the right things and yet lack the substance, which is love. And so we must ask ourselves, is my heart actually being shaped by the doctrine I proclaim to know so well? Because what is doctrine but a studying of who God is and God himself is love. So we must be shaped by that doctrine that we profess. He also says that love or hate, is not a mere absence of conflict. Love is not a mere absence of conflict. We typically don't think in terms as strong as hate about people. We think about somebody and we don't think, we think, you know, I don't necessarily love this person that I'm my best friend, but I don't hate them either. It's just, you know, they're just kind of there. I see them at church every now and then. He's saying there is no such thing. The connotations of the word hate and love, respectively, in this passage are a moving away from someone, separating from someone, and a moving toward. A moving away and a moving toward. William Barclay gives us some very helpful categories that we could think about, uh, categories that we put people in rather than moving towards them. Uh, One of those is that they are, uh, we view them as negligible. So I'm too busy with with better and more important and good things. This person is just not worth my time. Uh, Outright contempt. We may be repulsed or offended by their beliefs or their uh, persuasions or opinions or their choices or their lifestyle. And so we just make sure that our lives intersect as little as possible. We might view them as a nuisance. This person is a constant drain on my time and my energy, and my resources. They ask for a lot, and they give very little. Or we might view them as an outright enemy. This person is actively opposed to the things that I love and prefer, and so they are an enemy to be attacked and defeated. So we might ask ourselves, who are those people that are hardest for me to move toward in love? Who are the people that are the hardest for me to move toward in love. I want to encourage you, don't think far out there, the dictator in a foreign land who we, uh, you know, hate by, uh, we just naturally hate and kind of dispel their actions. Think closer to home. Think within your family, within your church, within your workplace. Who are the people that are difficult for you to move toward in love? Is it the person with the opposite political persuasion of you? When we sometimes think in our mind, I cannot believe that someone could be a Christian and vote for fill in the blank. Is it a person with more money than you or less? 
Is it a person with different cultural preferences or lifestyles that just seem to butt heads with yours all the time? Is it those older people who just don't seem to get it? Or those younger people who just don't seem to get it? Who are the people in our lives that are difficult for us to move toward in love the way that Jesus has moved toward us in love? So there's no neutrality. He also says that there is no stumbling. No stumbling. What John is getting at here is that hating other people is actually detrimental to self. It's not just a matter of what we do to other people through our hate. It's actually detrimental to self. Hating other people is detrimental to self. It makes us dumb. The contrast of light and dark can also be applied to knowledge and understanding or blindness and a lack of understanding. Think about how that plays out practically for us. When we hate somebody and we were just consumed with what we hate about their opinions or their beliefs or their lifestyles, we stop forming positive beliefs and opinions for our own lives and we start only forming negative uh, reacting opinions and beliefs to what they believe such that we don't even know what we believe positively anymore. Everything that we believe is just a negative response to what they say they know. It makes us dumber. We surround ourselves with people who only think the same way as we do, and life becomes very narrow. John Stott says this, Our love and hatred not only reveal whether we are already in the light or darkness, but actually contribute toward the light or darkness in which we already are. So I think, brothers and sisters, us as a church at Second have a very unique opportunity in the coming months and years. We're about to enter into uh, two different, at least that I can think of, phases or seasons of life where we have a great opportunity to demonstrate this love. One is the election season that I know we're all very much looking forward to. And we sometimes view that with a a great amount of dread. But what if we changed our attitude such that we saw this as an opportunity to move toward in love those with whom we disagree and so give a powerful witness of the light of Christ to those around us or to the people who disagree with us by listening, seeking to understand and not seeking to win an argument but simply seeking to move toward that person by dialoguing with them. We also have an opportunity in these parishes we've begun to start. In many ways, these parishes are a bit of a challenge for us because they've moved us outside of our our natural uh, social circles and they have forced us to interact with new people, people that we might not know well, uh, people that maybe don't want us to pursue them, But what would it look like if we pursued each other in this church, in our neighborhoods, and non-Christians in the context of community with one another in love to give witness of the love of Christ? If those who live in hate and who don't know Christ are living in darkness and those who know Christ are abiding in the light, then that means by loving one another we are actually bringing the light to bear on the darkness in which they live. We're giving them a little taste of the kingdom to come. 
such that what they experience when they uh, live amongst us and see our love matches the words that we say. And they get a little taste and they say, I want more of that. That's the love that I want to experience. That's the community that I want. So let's be a people in these coming months who change our attitude about the election season, about moving toward each other in parishes into an opportunity to love and so shed the light of the kingdom on the world around us. We have an opportunity for immediate application this evening of the command that this passage gives. The table is both a demonstration of the power of that love that Jesus has given us by giving his very life for us, and it's also a meal that we take together. We never take the Lord's Supper alone. And so as we go to confession, we have an opportunity to confess the ways that we have moved away from each other in hate and ask the Lord to overwhelm us with his love as demonstrated in the table and nourish us with this meal so that we might move toward each other in love this week. Let's pray. Father, we stand astounded by your love for us. And I ask, Father, that despite my attempts to even articulate it and explain it, we have not even touched the surface of it. Would you pour the love of the Father into our hearts and help us to love one another in response? We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.